This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here in sunny San Diego and um, congratulate Carol for putting this outstanding symposium together, for the opportunity to be here, and Cedric um, and all my f- friends that are, that are out here. So I'm going to give you a very broad overview about sunlight and health. And I knew that I was in trouble because I had this varied audience with varied experience. So I went to a physician who's kind of an alternative, alternative medicine doc who really I think you all know and respect for his wisdom. And I asked him, how is I going to do this? And thanks to the IT people here, we were able to get him to make a comment. And indeed... <laughs> I I received support from NIH and UV Foundation, and I also um, partner um, with uh, Rob Williams and Ontometrics. I also get support from the Sun. And indeed... You're an idiot. That's what the alternative medicine doc was saying, right? And so what am I going to tell you about sunlight that you don't already know about? Because we keep hearing about sunlight being bad for your health. And indeed, as you heard from Carol, both the Surgeon General and the FDA warn us about any exposure to sunlight. And the mantra still from the American Academy of Dermatology is that you should never be exposed to one direct ray of sunlight in your life. And so the public's view of sunlight these days is certainly like this. And indeed, if you look at the screen test and you look at risk for skin cancer and concern from uh, our young, it really is quite significant. In fact, when you really think about it, I think this kind of slide says it all. Wow. Indeed, that's what we've been taught about the sun and that sun's rays can cause damage to your skin. And so, no kidding, excessive sun exposure will increase risk for skin cancer. So there's an evolution thinking about beachwear. Here in the 50s and the 70s, right, and new millennium, there's lots of sunscreen and a lot of clothing. And so, indeed, this slide kind of says it all. Because we were born, we evolved in sunlight, we've always appreciated the beneficial effects of the sun. Indeed, this is the bottom line, is education, right? And so Sunlight 101, right? The good, the bad, and the ugly, okay? And so when you think about sunlight, there is very many beneficial effects, but certainly if you're exposed to a lot of sunlight, you can have some negative consequences, and also you can have some ugly consequences as well. So I thought I would explore many of these with you, including the role that sunlight plays in making vitamin D. So sunlight exudes energy. And it's really remarkable that the amount of um, energy that's coming out of the sun. And so it's electromagnetic spectrum from cosmic rays all the way up to microwave uh, and radio wave radiation. And it's the uh, envelope around the Earth that really prevents most of the most serious and potentially harmful rays from reaching the Earth's surface. And in fact, if you look at the spectrum for sunlight, you can see that tiny amount of UV is actually reaching the Earth's surface. In fact, if you look at radiation reaching the Earth's surface, about UVB, 0.1%, UVA, 4.9%, visible, 39%, and here, infrared, about 56%. And so, and it turns out that evolutionarily, this UVB, of course, played a critical role in the production of vitamin D. So what are the consequences of being exposed to Um, sunlight and to EMR. And so if you look at the electric uh, electromagnetic spectrum, and you can look at ionized radiation, UVC. It certainly is used very effectively as an antiseptic uh, in a variety of circumstances, including in surgical suites. But it's UVB and UVA that we most are concerned about. And it's worthwhile noting, of course, you remember from high school days, is that the higher the wavelength, uh, that uh, uh, lower the wavelength, higher is the energy. And so as a result, when you're exposed to sunlight, what's quite remarkable is that the wavelength and energy, right, are inversely proportional. So that the higher the wavelength, lower is the energy. 
And indeed, the dependence of wavelength and skin pen penetration is pretty clear. And that is that UVC hardly gets through it at all because mostly absorbed by DNA and protein. But visible radiation can penetrate deep into your body cavity. And we have not a clue what the consequence of that is. Although I will be chat sharing with you some concepts about the period and clock genes that are present throughout your body. So when you're thinking about light penetration into the skin, UVB is penetrating mainly into your epidermis where you're making vitamin D and having a lot of other biologic effects, including producing nitric oxide. UVA penetrates deeply into your skin because it's not efficiently absorbed by DNA and proteins and as a result will get uh, into the dermal capillary bed. But visible light will go basically all the way into your body cavity. And when you think about sunlight, you always have to worry about the zenith angle of the sun and the ozone layer because when you're directly above uh, it and you have zero angle, you have the most maximum efficiency of UVB and UVA reaching the Earth's surface. And in the wintertime, say in September or October, where the sun is coming in at a more oblique angle, it has to go through a lot more ozone, and therefore the UVB and UVA is being absorbed. And that shows it very nicely here, is summer versus the winter. And this will have a significant impact, especially on the vitamin D story, because we know that winter sunlight basically cannot make any significant vitamin D if you live above about 30 degrees, 35 degrees latitude, and that there's a lot of association studies implying that winter is the time when many chronic illnesses occur. So how does the skin respond to the sun? And I think this shows it very nicely. Here are two hammerhead sharks. And so, yep, no question about it, that when you're exposed to sunlight, uh, you will tan. And so when you're exposed to UVA, it's penetrating through your epidermis. UVB is mainly being absorbed by the DNA and protein in your epidermis. And as a result, what's happening is that initially you develop increase in stratum corneum. So these are like little mirrors that are reflecting back the UVA and UVB. So that's the first response. The second response is that these melanocytes that sit between the dermis and epidermis begin to make packets of melanosomes that begin to migrate upward and to cover the uh, uh, very important nuclei of each of the uh, epidermal cells. Tyrosinase is the engine, basically, it's the enzyme that uh, makes the polymer melanin, which is a magnificent uh, uh, natural sunscreen. And this is the mechanism by which that occurs. But it's really quite remarkable. The melanocytes sit right here at the epidermal-dermal junction. And you can see very nicely how these melanosomes basically cap like an umbrella, all of the nuclei in the epidermis. So the body has evolved over time a very simple and effective way of helping to reduce risk for developing damage to your skin. Also, what's interesting is that melanocytes, when they sit between the epidermis and dermis, if they're exposed to UVB, they principally recognize this signal, and they make melanosomes that are going into the epidermis to protect your DNA and proteins. But if you're exposed to UVA, now penetrating into your dermis, the melanocytes also recognize this, and they begin to produce melanosomes that now migrate downward. By doing so, if you're only exposed to UVA, you could wind up having a lot of melanosomes in your dermis, but having very few in your epidermis. And even though you are looking normally pigmented and you think that you're being protected from the sun, in fact, you're getting blasted potentially by UVB radiation and potentially damaging your epidermis. So melanin really does act just like a umbrella to help protect our DNA from damage. And we also know that the possible mechanism for melanin synthesis is that they have these dimers formed, these thymine dimers, and that there are enzymes that, ex, um, that cause excision. And it was shown that when you're exposing a melanocyte to UVB, that these dimers seem to be a signal for tyrosinase to increase melanin production. So again, the body has been very clever in realizing it's exposed to sunlight. Yes, some of the DNA is starting to get damaged, it's excised, and it's those products that are now stimulating melanocytes to make more melanin. So when you're out there having a great time, 
If you look at the solar spectrum and erythema action spectrum and look at the solar spectrum, you could see that most of the erythema occurs right at about the range where vitamin D is being produced at around 290 to 315 nanometer radiation. But you also will have erythema in the UVA range as well. And so at noontime, about 15% of erythema occurs as a result of being exposed to UVA. 85% is due to UVB radiation. So UVA causes erythema and melanization, but you need about 1,000 times more compared to UVB. So bottom line is simple, which is you never want to burn, right? So how much do you want to get exposed? You never want to look like this. And coming from New England, of course, you can't look like that, right? Indeed, can sun damage your skin? There's no question that excessive exposure initially increases the risk for actinic keratoses, right, which are these kind of scaly lesions, and continued exposure can lead to basal and squamous cell carcinoma. The ugly, of course, is wrinkling, right? And what happens is that the UVA, particularly penetrating deep into your dermis, is causing destruction of your elastic tissue. And as a result, the springiness of your skin begins to collapse because of the cross-linking that's occurring as a result of being exposed to UVA, both its direct effect as well as its, anti, as well as its oxidant effect um, on the um, collagen matrix. So how have humans perceived the sun? There's no question that early on, that certainly we've always appreciated the beneficial effects of the sun. In fact, here, heliotherapy. Hippocrates pres prescribed heliotherapy, sunbathing, for both medical and psychological purposes. And, and Astup, who's a good friend, had provided me with a lot of her slides, and I'll note that in each of the slides that I'm using uh, from her presentation. So for humans, of course, the story really begins with the Industrial Revolution back in um, England. In the 19th century, most scientists thought that the effect of sunlight on the skin was due to heat generated by exposure. In 1801, UV radiation was actually discovered by Ritter. E. Holmes did an experiment, and he showed that if you were exposed to sunlight on your hand and looked at the temperature, that you would have pain, blisters, and erythema. If you took sunlight with a cloth and even had a higher temperature, that there was no pain, blisters, or erythema. So he had the first insight that exposure to sunlight on the skin was having some kind of a physiologic effect. And in fact, he showed very nicely that black uh, Grenadians' hands exposed to sunlight had no effect, provided the first insight that sun's radiation, not heat, had a biologic effect on the skin and that melanin was protective from sunburning back in 1820. 1820, black skin pigment, defense against scorching effects of the sun. Also, it turns out that Sinindeki, at the same time, in Warsaw, Poland, began to realize something because children in Warsaw had a high incidence of rickets. And so he did an association study, realizing that maybe there was an association with sunlight and rickets. And he realized that children living in Warsaw, in the inner city, had a high incidence of rickets, but the children living in the rural areas outside of Warsaw didn't. And so he said what's strong and obvious was the influence of sun on the cure of rickets and the frequent occurrence of the disease in densely populated towns where the streets were narrow and poorly lit. 1822, Sneadeki. Now, who was going to believe a Polish physician in 1822? Right? In 1897, Finson began treating lupus vulgaris, which is TB infection of the skin, with ultraviolet radiation, and he got the Nobel Prize in 1903. And in fact, Finson phototherapy became very popular, where people were put, being put outside and exposed to the direct rays of sunlight. And here are good, some good examples of before and after. And indeed, you could see that this was quite a dramatic impact, and as a result, realized that phototherapy had significant uh, importance. So heliotherapy was born, right? And Rollier, in particular, was a very strong proponent. And again, if you look at heliotherapy, in year 1933, there's over 165 different diseases which sunlight proved to be beneficial for treatment, right? From lowering blood pressure 
uh, and as well as having effects on your immune system. In 1889 in Boston, 80% of infants had evidence of rickets. And so that was a major issue. And it was Holchinsky in 1919, this Viennese physician, who realized that you could irradiate children with a mercury arc lamp and actually treat rickets. I mean, at the time, people thought this guy was a nut, because how could exposure of your skin have any impact deep on your skeleton? In fact, he was clever enough to realize if you irradiated one arm that you could actually demonstrate curing the rickets in the other arm. So he knew something was being made in the skin, entering the circulation and having a direct effect. And so here is some of the earliest x-rays of Holchinsky, October 1st, 1918, right? And here, November 12th, 1918. Just exposure for six weeks to ultraviolet radiation was considered to be an infallible cure for rickets. So two physicians finally realized if you can irradiate people with ultraviolet light, why not sunlight? And indeed, they showed Hessen Unger in New York City, 1921, published in JAMA, that they could cure rickets with sun exposure. This led to a novel concept. Our government actually set up an agency back in 1931, sending brochures to parents to recommend you put your children outside for sensible sunlight in order for them to prevent rickets. We also know that kids with rickets were more likely to have upper respiratory tract infections as well as dental caries, and all of the benefits for sunlight were beginning to be appreciated in the 1930s. 1939, this is typically what was typically happening in many hospitals around the world. And then also you could go to your local uh, pharmacy and to buy one of these lamps, and they were using them to irradiate kids and in fact, Spurdy came out with a mercury arc lamp that you could bring home. You would have goggles on your children. They'd be exposed to sunlight and would prevent them from getting rickets. But it was Harry Steenbach who thought of something different, which is if you're going to radiate people and animals, why not irradiate the food to impart anti-rickitic activity? Because he realized that cows don't put vitamin D in their milk. And so he started the concept of irradiating milk. So the magic vitamin D, Steenbach process, irradiation with ultraviolet light. This led then to the concept of irradiating yeast, and irradiated yeast were then used for leavening bread, which was a good source for vitamin D. And so everybody began to appreciate the healthful benefits of vitamin D, and it was all coming from exposure to ultraviolet radiation from some source. Even Bond Bread was using irradiated yeast and demonstrating that it had adequate vitamin D and recommended if you didn't want your children outside every day naked that you better eat vitamin D fortified Bond Bread. And so as a result of Steenbach, who realized if you could add the precursor ergosterol to milk and irradiate it, and you could have anti-rachitic activity, and then ultimately when vitamin D was easily made and inexpensive, they started fortifying milk with vitamin D, basically it eradicated rickets. And as a result, people no longer thought about the healthful benefits of vitamin D coming from the sun. In fact, if you look at from 1900 to 1940, phototherapy flourished, then there was swallowed up by pharmacology. So the introduction of penicillin basically really kind of heralded pharmacology and that everybody now thought all you need to do was to take a pill and that you could cure all ills. In fact, the dermatologists today still tell you you should never be exposed to one direct ray of sunlight. In fact, if you ever put your child outside without a sunscreen, you could wind up on America's Most Wanted for Child Abuse. So does sunlight have any beneficial effects? So the good, production of vitamin D, feeling well-being, regulating circadian rhythm. And so what about the big deal about D deficiency? You're going to be hearing a lot more about this from others uh, over the next two days. But even back in 07, Discover Magazine considered vitamin D to be very important for overall health and welfare as well as Time Magazine, 10 Biggest Medical Breakthroughs, More Benefits of Vitamin D. And we're now recognizing that wherever you publish, whether it be New England Journal of Medicine or Fitness Magazine, the super vitamin has certainly got a lot of attention. And even teens are appreciative of the sunny vitamin D. And so as you'll be hearing over the next two days that not only is rickets the issue with 
um, sun ex- lack of sun exposure, but we think that vitamin D deficiency increases the painful bone disease, osteomalacia, may increase risk for diabetes, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, infectious diseases, hypertension, heart disease, common cancers. You may recall from that slide on heliotherapy and that 165 list, almost all of these are on that list. They appreciated back in the 1930s that sun exposure helped reduce risk of these chronic illnesses. So vitamin D is a sunshine vitamin, whether you're an amphibian, reptile, avian species. Curiously, we did a study in chickens. I had a bunch of hungry graduate students and decided where do chickens make their vitamin D? The thinking was originally they were making it on the surface of their feathers because they were preening themselves and that they would then be cleaning themselves and consuming the vitamin D. But that didn't make any sense physiologically. And in fact, we found out that actually it's only on the top of the head where there's very little feathers and about 10 times more pro-vitamin D are on the legs than it would be on the back. So Mother Nature knows exactly where sun exposure occurs and where to produce vitamin D. Certainly, lower primates still depend on sun for their vitamin D requirement. But curiously, cats that are covered from head to tail with fur, can they make any? The answer is no. It was demonstrated that cats have no pro-vitamin D3 in their skin. And as a result, they totally depend on what they eat for their source of vitamin D. So our hunter-gatherer forefathers outside every day, of course, were making vitamin D. So as people migrated north and south through the equator, the question was, were they being able to make enough vitamin D? And it turns out that these dark, hairy Neanderthals actually weren't dark and hairy at all, but they likely were Celtic, that they probably had a mutation of their um, melanocyte receptor. And as a result, we think probably, and you'll be hearing a lot more from uh, Bruce Hollis about this, is that the reason probably for the disappearance of skin pigment as people migrate north and south to the equator is that here's a healthy pelvis of a normal female, This is a pelvis of a female, likely had infantile rickets, and as a result, has a very poor pelvic outlet, flat pelvis, difficult time with childbirthing. Now, we showed many years ago you can't make good vitamin D in the wintertime, and so I took my daughter on safari to Kenya, and sure enough, you can make it year-round. But you cannot remove this from your taxes as a medical expense. But I tell you what. This sambora warrior, he's perfectly designed for his environment. And indeed, when you compare and contrast, there's no question my gene pigment devolved. And so how do you do it? Well, when you're exposed to sunlight, it's the precursor cholesterol in your skin. Absorbs ultraviolet radiation, converting it to vitamin D. Now, you may ask, if you're on a statin and you prevent cholesterol biosynthesis, does it have an impact? The answer is no. Statins don't get into your skin to affect this process. Now, she's a lot of bad habits and a lot of worries, but one thing that's amazing about sun-induced vitamin D, you can never become vitamin D toxic because you make all these photoproducts. We're doing research right now, so this issue of doing more research is that why do you make all these photoproducts? It's likely that they have biologic effects. And in fact, Rebecca Mason in Australia has suggested that some of these that are hydroxylated may have anti-cancer activity, and we've reported very similar types of studies. So you can never become toxic from sun exposure. But it is true, because I'm asked the question, if you take vitamin D as a supplement or you expose to sunlight, does it make any difference? Well, the difference for sure is that when you make it in your skin, it lasts two to three times longer in your body than it does when you take it as a supplement. So what about bone health? There's no question that it's essential. Whether you're a rodent or a puppy or a cow or a chicken, all vertebrates need a source of vitamin D. And even the pet industry, because there's about 10 million households in the United States that have pet reptiles, they know that they need vitamin D. And certainly, you always have them indoors. So of course, industry rose to the occasion. So you can go to your local pet shop and buy simulated sunlight that has UVB radiation for 40 bucks so that your pet reptile at home will make vitamin D in its skin. Now, we don't do this for our nursing home residents. No, no, no. But we do this for our pet iguanas. This is the problem, because it's assumed if you have a healthy diet, you're getting all the vitamin D that you need. But we and others have shown many years ago that no matter what diet you have in the United States, If you're not taking a significant amount of vitamin D supplementation, no child or adult in the United States can get enough vitamin D from their diet.
Dairy is fortified, but there's only 100 units. And even the Institute of Medicine says you need 600 units a day. So you'd have to drink six glasses of milk a day. Also, orange juice is fortified with calcium and vitamin D, and it's, again, a good source. Mushrooms, they make vitamin D. We don't exactly know why, but the mushroom industry thought this is a great idea. So you could go to your local produce section and now get a source of vitamin D by having UV-exposed mushrooms. And so in the summertime, you're making lots of vitamin D, but that zenith angle of the sun is important. So directly above you, that 0.1% UVB is coming through, you're making vitamin D. In the wintertime, however, it's a little bit different, right? You wear more clothing, and now it's coming in at a more oblique angle, and these UVB photons have to get, go through a longer path length, and most are absorbed. And in fact, we went on to show that if you put samples outside of human skin or these um, ampules. In the spring, summer, and fall in Boston, you made vitamin D, but in the wintertime, couldn't make any at all. Indeed, we did a study even in Edmonton, Canada, and showed that that was extended from October through April, is when you could not make any vitamin D, no no matter how much time you stood outside. Now, my colleagues say, well, this stuff with the test tubes doesn't cut it anymore. We need evidence-based medicine. So I went to my students and said, I need a person to volunteer to go up on the roof in the middle of winter to prove you can't make any vitamin D. So I finally got a volunteer. You make none, right? Indeed, my daughter had the better part of this from Middlebury College down to Miami. You could make it year-round. So basically, if you live above Atlanta, Georgia, or Los Angeles, California, you basically cannot make any significant vitamin D in your skin. And 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. is the only time for the same reason, because the zenith angle of the sun is so oblique. So what about sunscreen use? No question. If you put it on properly, it reduces your ability to make vitamin D by about 98%. And it's not rocket science. It's preventing absorption of UVB into the epidermis, so you make very little vitamin D. 90 95% of your vitamin D is coming from sun exposure. You never want to burn, right? And how do you know how much you're really going to make? Well, you just little pop it, just to pop out of your belly button. It doesn't happen anymore. So we did a study, and we showed if you take healthy adults, put them in a tanning bed, and get a minimal erythemal dose, which is a light pinkness to your skin 24 hours later, it's equivalent to about 15 to 20,000 units of vitamin D. So your skin has a huge capacity to make vitamin D. In fact, we went out to show that all skin types exposed to simulated sunlight was more effective at raising blood levels of 25-hydroxy-D compared to taking 1,000 units of vitamin D2 or vitamin D3 daily. Also, aging definitely decreases your capacity to make vitamin D by about 75%. But it turns out that, yep, even Bernsey here can make vitamin D because we took old biddies, wheeled them on a veranda, and showed that they increased their blood levels of 25-hydroxy-D. And here, a nice study by Ian Reid, 15 to 30 minutes a day raised their blood levels. Why is she screaming? Because it's been thought that if you go out in the sun and then you go and take a bath immediately afterwards, you're going to wash it all off, this precious vitamin D. Turns out you make it in your actively growing layers, not to worry. You can definitely bathe after you're exposed to sunlight. Does sunlight provide you with your vitamin D? No matter what your ethnicity, peak blood levels are at the end of the summer. The nadir is at the end of the winter. Five to 15 minutes, because if I'm going to get a mild sunburn after 30 minutes, arms, legs, abdomen, and back, followed by good sun protection, just like what she's doing here. Sensible sun exposure. Also, Pele with his girlfriend, pigmentation is very efficient in absorbing UVB, and they need to be outside at least four to ten times longer to make enough. And we showed very nicely, if you take Caucasians versus African-Americans exposed to the same amount of UV, they didn't raise their blood levels at all for vitamin D. They needed to be exposed to five to ten times more to barely raise their blood levels of vitamin D. So are there other benefits to being exposed to UVR? Maintain skin health. It's well known in the dermatology uh, Uh, profession, psoriasis, that if you take a patient with psoriasis and expose them to UVB, that indeed, here are 20 patients, six weeks, 80% responded. Why do people feel good when they're exposed to sunlight? Do human skin cells produce a happy substance in response to sunlight? Right? Does human skin produce beta-endorphin? 
And so we asked this question many years ago and showed that if you take cultured human skin cells and exposed to UVA, we saw no appearance of beta endorphin. But exposed to UVB, we did. Does human skin produce beta endorphin and enter the bloodstream to make you feel better? A very nice study done by John Parrish showed that sunlight, beta endorphin. You're exposed to sunlight, simulated sunlight, beta endorphin levels increase in your bloodstream, and sure enough, you can find it in your bloodstream, presumably going back to your brain to make you feel better. About a 44% increase in beta endorphin levels. So you can make beta endorphin in your skin. And indeed, if you're thinking about exposure to uh, UVB radiation, that the POMC, this pro-opiomenocortin peptide, is not only produced in your pituitary gland, but it's also produced in your skin. Um, Slominski showed very nicely. And also it produces ACTH, which I will be explaining to you why that has important ramifications for autoimmune diseases, including multiple sclerosis and type 1 diabetes. So when you think about beta endorphin, an opiate peptide, when you're exposed to sunlight and you're making it in your skin, you definitely are feeling better because it's likely getting back into the brain to um, improve uh, pain relief, feeling of well-being, and relaxation. Endorphins also are good for wound healing, cellular differentiation, and pain. And here's a study that showed very nicely changes following a single dose of UVB in terms of beta endorphin levels. And when you look at naltrexone, which is an uh, antagonist uh, to uh, opioid, that you could see very nicely that you could actually make much more beta endorphin and have a marked effect on brain in terms of feeling better than you can by taking an opioid. And so also endorphins are natural pain and stress fighters. If you look at these symptoms for fibromyalgia, pilot study suggested that UV may have some potential in reducing chronic pain and improving mood in persons with fibromyalgic-like symptoms. Sunlight deprivation and depression, seasonal affective disorder. There's a lot of information out there to suggest that it's the intensity and duration of um, visible radiation in the blue range in particular going through the retina and, uh, and having an effect on uh, the production of melatonin. So circadian rhythm, if you look at the acute effects that you will increase serotonin, alters body uh, temperature, heart rate, alertness, cognitive performance, brain blood flow, EEG responses, food and water intake. So all of these things like uh, obesity and chronic illnesses have been associated certainly with people not feeling well. And circadian rhythm control could very well have a significant impact. And indeed, if you look at sunlight on pain, stress, and depression, they showed very nicely that if you're exposed in the summertime to sunlight compared to the winter, that the serotonin levels are much, much lower in the winter than they are in the summer. And you certainly feel better in the summertime. Also, there's a very nice study that showed that the 24-year-old with PMS symptoms that was exposed to bright light uh, was having a beneficial effect on PMS. So... Exposure of light to the brain, regulating melatonin, we know has a significant impact on SAD. But can the skin perceive bright light and transfer the signal to the brain? And so is the biologic clock also in your skin? And the answer is probably yes. Indeed, if you look at science many years ago, they did a really interesting study where they took a fruit fly. And what is all these purple dots? These purple dots are clock genes. Clock genes are transcription factors that regulate gene activity. And they showed in some of the earliest life forms that basically every cell in this fruit fly had a clock gene. So likely, when they're exposed to sunlight, that all of these cells are being responsive to that. So maybe exposure to bright light to the skin in a sun tanning bed, for example, could set your biologic clock. Uh, 
And so in 2000, we published an investigative dermatology journal when we took human skin cells and looked for the production of period one that we could show very nicely that skin cells do, in, in fact, express period one gene as well as clock genes, and that they seem to be regulated by exposure to simulated sunlight. So does UVB alter clock gene expression? period one gene expression, we went on to show that UVB has a significant impact on these transcription factors. Why? It's possible that, remember I had mentioned that visible light penetrates deeply into your body cavity and that it's quite possible that some of these clock genes are being regulated by visible light as well. We also know that UVB irradiation may help hypertension. And indeed, again from ASTA, is ultraviolet radiation and cardiovascular disease. Seasonal variation in mortality caused by cardiovascular disease always occurs uh, mainly in the winter um, months and the least is in the summer months, in June and July and August. Seasonal variation in serum cholesterol levels, again, they lower in the summertime than they are in the wintertime. Seasonal variation in blood pressure, again, up and down as a function of season. Solar UV and blood pressure. Rostan, in 1979, first suggested an inverse relationship between blood pressure and latitude. Indeed, he showed that the lower the latitude that you lived, lower was your blood pressure. And we went on to do a study and asked the question, if you took hypertensive individuals and exposed them to UVB radiation, or UVA radiation, would it have an effect on blood pressure? And six weeks, measured blood pressure. So we took healthy adults, put them in our tanning bed with UVB and UVA, and three times a week for three months. Serum 20-hydroxy-D for the UVA group, because we used the polycarbonate shield to block out the UVB and the placebo group. The UVB group, increased their blood levels of 25-hydroxy-D into what we consider to be the healthy range of above 30 nanograms per ml. UVA group on blood pressure, we saw no impact on diastolic or systolic. But UVB group, a significant decline in both the diastolic and systolic blood pressure. So at least in this very small study, we could show that UVB and not UVA, acute under acute circumstances, significantly decreased blood pressure. And we published this in Lancet, and we went on to show that even out to nine months that we were able to help reduce blood pressure, both systolic and diastolic, over time. Also, vitamin D has an important role to play on myocardium, on blood pressure, and atherosclerotic plaque formation. And so this could be part of the explanation for why sunlight reduces risk for cardiovascular disease. But don't forget about NO, because NO has a very significant impact as well. So not only does 25-hydroxy vitamin D have a significant impact on cardiovascular disease, but NO has as well. And it works in a variety of ways because it can impact on uh, vascular blood flow. So the role of nitric oxide for vasodilation, UV-induced melanogenesis, you have inflammation, apoptosis, wound healing, but vasodilation is certainly a significant player that probably is having an effect on blood pressure. In fact, UVA in this study long-term demonstrated that there was a significant decline in blood pressure independent of UVB. UVA liberates nitric oxide from the epidermis, shown very nicely here by immunohistochemistry, and also demonstrating that the more UVA the skin was exposed to, more uh, nitric oxide was being produced. Calculate nitric oxide released from skin stored by season and latitude. Again, if you look at uh, the season and latitude, the lower the latitude, more nitric oxide is being produced. Also, curiously, if you look at the heme part of the hemoglobin exposed to UV radiation, it actually will release CO, carbon monoxide, which also can cause vasodilation, among having other biologic effects. 
Also, there's a calcitonin gene-related peptide, as well as this POMC that I've talked about, making ACTH and a whole host of factors. And it's been demonstrated by Slominski and others that when you're exposed to simulated sunlight, that the skin cells express these genes and make these products. And indeed, even substance P is being produced in the skin. It's a neurotransmitter, neuromodulator, and it's a vasodilator. So what about the immune system? No question that there's a lot of impact of exposure to ultraviolet radiation. Margaret Kripke showed this over 30 years ago, that it causes alteration in your immune function that she believed in a positive manner. And so UV effects on other diseases like MS. It turns out that we know that the higher the latitude that you live, higher is your risk for developing multiple sclerosis. In fact, if you live above about 35 degrees north latitude for the first 10 years of your life, 100% increased risk of developing MS for the rest of your life, no matter where you live on the globe. A study done out of Harvard, Nurses Health Study, showed that nurses that had the highest intake of vitamin D reduced risk of MS by 41%. Also, studies have shown that the lower vitamin D status was associated with higher relapse risk in MS patients. But also, that's not the whole story, because the study done by Hector DeLuca's group showed that if you exposed mice, that you gave them a encephalitis to uh, mimic multiple sclerosis, and you exposed them to UVB versus UVA, that he could sh show very nicely that whereas the 25-hydroxyvitamin D levels did not change, that the group receiving UVA radiation had a significant impact on the encephalitis activity. So that there is more to the story than simply vitamin D, that, vitamin, that the UVA is also having an effect on the immune system. So for multiple sclerosis, we also know that exposure to ultraviolet radiation will down-regulate T helper cell activity and, of course, have some an additional impact on immunosuppression. And so there's a lot of information now suggesting that when you're exposed to simulated sunlight, that ACTH is being produced. And curiously, that one of the major drugs to treat multiple sclerosis is ACTH. So it's not a surprise that adrenocorticotropic hormones may not only impact on this autoimmune disease MS, but may have an impact also on rheumatoid arthritis. And indeed, even in osteoporosis, ACTH has been demonstrated to increase bone mineral density. And also, we know that vitamin D status is inversely associated with rheumatoid arthritis. UV effects on other diseases using these melanocortins. So look at energy homeostasis, uh, analgesia, inflammation, immunomodulation, thermoregulation, cardiovascular regulation, neuromuscular regeneration, food intake, body weight control. Right? Type 1 diabetes, we've known also, of course, that the higher the latitude that you live, and you'll be hearing more about this from Dr. Gorman um, later on, is that the higher is your risk for developing type 1 diabetes. And it was Haponin, back in 2001 in Lancet, showed school children taking, I'm sorry, infants taking 2,000 units a day during the first year of life reduced risk of type 1 diabetes by 88%. Right? And look at this. As the Finns worried about deintoxication, they continued to decrease vitamin D intake, and bingo, the incidence of type 1 diabetes on the rise. Ever wondered about the immune system? Turns out that macrophages activate vitamin D, and they make it for good reason. There's no question, 1849, cod liver oil and TB, vitamin D protects against TB. So when you infect a macrophage with TB, Adams and Maudlin showed several years ago in science that you first turn on the enzyme to activate vitamin D to 125-dihydroxyvitamin D, tells the cell to make a thalassidin, a defense in protein, that specifically kills infective agents. So we think that's probably the reason why solariums were so effective for patients with TB. The flu season coming upon us again, it's always been thought, 
uh, Hope Simpson that there's a seasonal stimulus. In fact, at the peak flu season, of course, is at the nadir of your 25-hydroxy vitamin D. Study done out of Yale showed that if you have an average level of 38 nanograms per ml, reduced risk of upper respiratory tract infections twofold. Influenza A infection, here in school children in Japan, 1,200 units a day, reduced risk 42%. Also, asthma has been recognized to be maybe impacted by exposure to sunlight because it does have an impact on T cell uh, activity. Also, that if you look at immune suppression, there's both a peak at around 300 nanometers, and there's one here out at around uh, 370 nanometers. So UVA radiation definitely has an impact on immune function, and that could be part of the explanation for DeLuca's observation with encephalitis in mice and having an effect. So when you think about photoimmunosuppression, there's a lot of both negatives and positives, but the bottom line is that it, in fact, is a positive for immunohealth. I'm not going to talk very much about visible radiation because you're going to be hearing about this from Dr. Wunsch uh, shortly, but low-energy photon therapy with venous legs, uh, leg ulcers, double-blinded, placebo-controlled trial, marked improvement using this laser type of technology. And similarly, when you're looking at um, red and blue uh, laser light and looking at collagen synthesis in your skin and looking at the impact before and after on wrinkling, a significant benefit that you'll be hearing more about. So why should you care about all this? Well, actually, once your vitamin D is made in your skin, it has to get activated. And every tissue and cell in your body has a vitamin D receptor. And, of course, we're now recognizing that part of the reason is that it affects a variety of genes. And you're going to be hearing a lot more about this from other speakers. But sure enough, we've always known exposure to sunlight reduces risk here in San Diego for cancer. In fact, can sunbathing reduce your risk? 1941, it was Apperly who showed exposure to sunlight. If you live northeast, you're more likely to die of cancer than if you live down south. And, of course, Cedric Garland showed many years ago that you just increase your vitamin D intake to 1,000 units a day, projected reduction in colorectal cancer by about 50% reduced. Breast cancer, nurses' health study showed, nurses had the highest blood levels, 50% lower risk. And a very nice study done out of Canada showed that if you are exposed to the most sunlight during your early years in life for women, reduce risk of breast cancer by as much as 69%. Possible connection? We've always known that prostate cells, right, we know that they can now activate vitamin D. And so many cells in your body have the ability to activate vitamin D and that it induces its own destruction so it never enters the circulation. So it inhibits cancer cell growth. And it's estimated up to 2,000 genes are directly or indirectly regulated by the active form of vitamin D. In fact, we did a study and showed in healthy adults for 12 weeks getting 2,000 units of vitamin D a day, looking at almost 23,000 genes. If you look at before and after, all of these genes in blue are turned off, they're now turned on, and vice versa. And we went on to show that up to 80 different metabolic processes from DNA repair, apoptosis, oxidative stress, metabolic processes, anti-inflammatory activity associated with this process. Feed your genes right with vitamin D. So adequate sunlight and vitamin D is necessary from birth until death, right? Just like what our hunter-gatherer forefathers were doing. The study was done to show their average blood level of 40 to 60 nanograms per ml. Look at this. Think about disease burden and vitamin D deficiency and sunlight deficiency is really quite significant worldwide. Look, Johnny, a spot of sunshine, play it and get your vitamin D. We've always appreciated the beneficial effects of the sun. So I'm a proponent of sensible sun exposure. How do you get the message out to the public? I wrote a book back in 2004. And just like Carol, I do not advocate tanning. Right? But those that wish to do should do it responsibly. And like I said, you definitely increase your risk for non-melanoma skin cancer from excessive sun exposure. But everybody worries about melanoma, the most deadly form. But as we pointed out, most melanomas occur on the least sun-exposed areas. And remarkably, occupational sun exposure decreases risk for melanoma. And here it is in Journal of Investigative Dermatology, 2003. 
Lifetime sun exposure is associated with a lower risk of malignant melanoma. Right, our ancestors' view of the sun a little bit different than dermatologists' view. Right, no question that they recommend sun protection. Have you ever been on rounds with an enlightened dermatologist? No question about it. Indeed, Schultz epitomizes good common sense. And here, Linus get a note from his mom. Are you sitting on the sun? I hope so. A little sun is good, as long as you don't overdo it. Perhaps 10 minutes a day. This time of the year is about right. He was right on target. No question about it. Right? This is what's happened to our sun. It's been demonized for more than 40 years unchallenged. Right? Sun and humans. 1927, people were out there enjoying themselves, right? And now, look at 2013, right? To sunlight must, moreover, be the greatest importance in maintaining normal health, a fact far too little taken to heart, even today, right? Slips off message in Australia. Guess who this is? 40% of Australians are deficient because this is an Australian dermatologist on vacation, and they found 87% vitamin D deficient at the end of the summer. Have you ever wondered about this? Nothing can stop that now. Nobody couldn't stop. Look, you were right. You were right about. You know what he was right about? Right. Vitamin D deficiency is associated with right dementia. Right. Indeed, sunlight and vitamin D deficiency, schizophrenia, depression, and dementia as well as Alzheimer's disease has now been associated. So you can get the same healthful benefits of sunlight from diet, supplements, and maybe drugs, right? Hopefully convinced you, you cannot. Indeed, what do I do? Just like all my family members, the best source is getting some sensible sun. Time of day, season of the year, latitude, worrying about skin protection, worrying about sun burning, right? And so why not develop an app? And so Rob Williams, who is here today, uh, developed this app, and, and I partnered with him in doing so. And indeed, for free, dminder.info will tell you not only if you're making vitamin D, but warns you to get out of the sun so that you don't damage your skin. And so I, like all my family members, sun protection on face, but not on arms and legs. And I also recommend that we increase our vitamin D intake. I think about 4,000 units a day, blood level about 62 nanograms per ml. Lack of adequate sunlight and vitamin D deficiency is a major impact on your health, right? Any one of these chronic illnesses turn out to be associated with inadequate amount of vitamin D or inadequate sun exposure, right? There is no downside to obtaining sensible sun exposure, right? You don't need to be a genius to know this. We need sensible sun and vitamin D supplement recommendations. This is not a hypothesis, right? We don't need more research, right? I wrote, wrote a book recently, a new one, about the vitamin D. I'm grateful to my family for all of their support and letting me be here today. And thank you for your kind attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.